in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out how honeybee swarms keep it together under stress. Plus, we'll be learning the ethics of sucking carbon dioxide out that atmosphere. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Well, listeners, before we start this week's show, I'd like to interrupt our regularly scheduled programming with a little bit of news. This week's podcast is Adam's last for a while. He's leaving us as co-host after, what, hundreds of episodes of the podcast? Yeah, um, pretty much. I've been here almost exactly three and a half Earth orbits around the sun. I first appeared on the show reading the research highlights way back on the 26th of March 2015. I've learned a huge amount in that time, and it has been such a constant joy to discover new research and new ways of sharing it every single week. So it's with a heavy heart that I'm leaving the show and all its fantastic listeners. Well, Adam, we're very sad that you're leaving as well. Um, listeners, stick around to the end of the show and we'll let you know where you can follow Adam's future endeavours. For now, though, Adam, what have you got for us this week? Well, as regular listeners will know, climate change is the epicentre of my scientific obsessions. So for my final week hosting the show, I wanted to bring you a final story about global warming. Now, to stop the world heating up, we need to limit the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. The obvious way to do this is to stop pumping it up there in the first place. The quicker global emissions fall to zero, the lower the temperature rise we commit our planet to. But cutting emissions isn't the only way to stop greenhouse gases building up. What if we could actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere? There are plenty of ideas for these negative emissions technologies. They range from the simple, planting trees, to the high-tech, building machines that actively suck CO2 from the air. But while the ideas themselves are still somewhat speculative, they're actually built into our plans for the world's climate future. In Paris in 2015, the world agreed to keep global warming to well under 2 degrees, with a goal of just 1.5 degrees. But the world's already warmed by one whole degree. Just cutting emissions may not be enough. We may need negative emissions to reach even the less ambitious two-degree target, and the scale may be huge. Here's environmental scientist Joe House. The scale of greenhouse gas removal, these negative emissions, is, is really large. So most of the global scenarios that were included in the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment indicate just to get there to the two degrees target, you'd need several hundred gigatons of carbon dioxide removal. I've seen figures that it's equivalent to about 17 years' worth of current emissions. Removing these levels of carbon dioxide poses serious challenges. Take one of the most commonly considered negative emissions approaches, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECS. BECS would burn biomass for energy and then capture and store the CO2 before it entered the atmosphere. But the amount of land that certain scenarios suggest might be required for BECS is truly vast. 
It can be from kind of zero amount of BEX to about 700 million hectares of BEX in some of the scenarios. And to put that in context for your listeners, that's about twice the size of India. So some of these scenarios include massive areas of land use change. Changing land use on such scales would pose a huge technical hurdle. But in a comment piece out this week, philosopher Dominic Lenzi suggests that there are other concerns that need careful consideration. There's a very real chance of conflicts with other land use goals such as global food security, water um, and of course biodiversity. So there can be really sharp trade-offs created by this kind of negative emissions demand. Many negative emissions approaches raise important ethical questions about how we use vast amounts of land then. These ethical questions in turn raise difficult legal questions. That's according to environmental lawyer Jonathan Church. Issues of you know, land rights and, and ensuring people aren't exploited, um, people who live in, uh, you know, off the forests. And a lot of these ethical issues run into those issues of how to ensure that the law, particularly in the developing world, is robust enough to deal with a lot of the consequences that could come out of the expansion of negative emissions. The problem, Dominic argues in his comment piece, is that these questions simply aren't being asked. While negative emissions are an implicit part of many plans to limit global warming, he believes that their implications are not considered when it comes to crucial climate negotiations. I would say that many policymakers would not be aware of the uh, requirements of negative emissions. They certainly weren't, it seems, during the Paris negotiations. It really throws into question the idea that we're doing clear-sighted policymaking and policy assessment if we don't really appreciate the ethical implications of what we're talking about. And this isn't just a problem for policymakers. Jonathan, who works at environmental NGO Client Earth, feels that the law is also playing catch-up with these considerations. To some extent, he feels, there just isn't a full enough understanding of the potential risks and gains of different approaches. And for a scientist like Joe, bringing these considerations into the discussion on negative emissions would be a welcome development. And it's essential to bring in the, the social sciences, philosophy and different, different, you know, different groups of people. Because at the end of the day, you know, models can, can look at maybe technology, but actually implementation and the effect that has will depend on these more important socio-economic aspects. However our societies weigh up these socio-economic aspects, one thing is clear. Negative emissions are no magic bullet allowing us to avoid cutting carbon dioxide emissions. Even with stringent cuts starting today, negative emissions may still be required to limit global warming. And if we don't start cutting emissions soon, we may be faced with even starker choices. The later we start to decarbonise our economies... Uh, the more negative emissions we'll need and the more uh, severe the likely risks are. The longer we wait, the worse the consequences will be and the sharper the trade-offs. And that's really the point, that we should be starting now and thinking about negative emissions, not delaying and then thinking about negative emissions at 2050, say. Then we're really limited to a set of scenarios that are all quite bad. Negative emissions, I guess, are a way of bailing water out of the bathtub 
before it overflows. So the main thing is you turn off those taps, and we do that as fast as we can. Um, I guess the analogy of bailing water out is a little too kind because we don't know if these buckets hold water. That was Jonathan Church of Client Earth, and before him, Dominic Lenzi of the Mercator Research Institute in Germany and Joe House, who's based at Bristol University in the UK. Find Dominic's comment piece at nature.com forward slash news. And for more on the technological side of greenhouse gas removal, Joe contributed to a recent Royal Society report on the topic. Find that at royalsociety.org. Coming up in the show, we'll be learning about the super-sensitive cameras capturing images of deep-sea creatures. And that's in the news chat. Before then, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. What if we could put Europe on a diet? Not a crazy cabbage soup diet, just adhering to national healthy eating guidelines. It turns out this could drastically cut the amount of water used in the region. A team of scientists looked at the amount of water needed to produce the food and alcoholic drinks consumed in the UK, France and Germany. If people stuck to a balanced diet rich in grains, fruit and veg, the water footprint would fall by up to a third. The savings would be even bigger for pescatarian and vegetarian diets. The scientists hoped their research could help policymakers manage increasingly scarce water resources. But it's not easy to convince people to shift their eating habits. Check out the paper over at Nature Sustainability. There may be a new crack in CRISPR-Cas9's capabilities. Hailed as a hugely powerful tool for editing DNA, new research suggests the system struggles when the DNA is all wound up. To tweak a genome, the Cas9 enzyme cuts DNA at a specific site. But many cells store their DNA by winding it round proteins, a structure called a nucleosome. Scientists found that in yeast, the CRISPR machinery worked much more efficiently when the nucleosomes weren't present, but it struggled when the DNA was still wrapped around the proteins. The researchers say their findings could help scientists decide where to target their CRISPR cuts and whether they need to remove the nucleosomes first. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Next up, reporter Noah Baker has been investigating how a swarm of bees hold themselves together. Any animals which live collectively have to solve problems uh, on scales which are much larger than individuals. So, for example, when bees bivouac. A bivouac is a temporary structure formed entirely of the bees' own bodies. They form them when they're moving to a new nest. You may have seen them hanging in trees. As you get closer, you can see the bees clinging onto each other in a hanging, writhing swarm. I got interested initially just because um, I was fascinated by the shape of a bee cluster. That's Mahadevan, a mathematician, physicist and biologist from Harvard University. He got interested in the mechanics of how a bee cluster holds itself together. It looks somewhat conical, and the natural question was, why is it conical? A second natural question is, does it remain conical always? Um, for example, if it starts to become very cold or you start shaking it. Bee clusters are often shaken about by the wind 
or predators, or very occasionally by an elaborate piece of lab equipment designed by Jacob Peters and his colleagues. I'm a honeybee researcher, and I built this rig um, with the rest of the group to shake a swarm of honeybees. Uh, the honeybees were um, attached to a board, which we moved back and forth with a motor, and we filmed their response. Now, Jake didn't attach the bees themselves. Instead, he attached a small cage containing their queen. And she gives off a particular pheromone that signals to the rest of the bees, and uh, they use a, a aggregation behavior to form a, a cluster around her. Then they wobbled the resulting cluster, up and down and from side to side. And it was during this side-to-side wobbling that the researchers noticed something interesting. Mahadevan put me in the bee's shoes to demonstrate what it was. And if I ask you to imagine what would happen if I put you in an elevator, for example, and started shaking the elevator, what would you do immediately to try and stabilize yourself? I suppose flatten myself down? Exactly. So you want to start crouching. Because by crouching, you reduce your center of mass. And by reducing your center of mass, you tend to become more stable. And so this is exactly what the bees do, except that they do it collectively. The swarm flattened out, from what was a conical structure to something which better resembles a lumpy pancake. To find out a bit more about what was going on, Mahadevan turned to Orit Peleg, a computer scientist who has a bit of a knack for biological systems. So the model was trying to take our experimental observations and try to use them to reverse engineer what bees are sensing locally inside the swarm. And the way to do that was basically to uh, model the swarm as an elastic material where we can measure the mechanical perturbation each point in the swarm is experiencing. And by doing that, we could see that the um, strain gradient is increasing upwards as you get closer to the base. The bees at the base of the upside-down cone, the top to you and me, are holding up the weight of all the bees underneath, so this is where the strain is highest. That strain is evened out a bit when the swarm flattens out, and that's good for stability. But while the forces act on the whole swarm, it's not actually a single entity. Here's Mahadevan again. So then you ask, well, how do they do it? Because it's not an individual, it's a collection. And so we essentially traced out bee lines, so to speak. And if you see that they essentially move, we can only see from the outside because we didn't use any fancy imaging to see what happens to the bees inside. But they gradually move from the tip of the cone, so to speak, towards the base of the cone. In Orit's models, she could show that if every bee responded to the strain of shaking by moving towards the stress, the shape of the colony as a whole flattens out and becomes more stable. What's also interesting is it seems that the bees don't need to communicate with each other in order to undertake this communal flattening. Here's Jake again. The real integration of information in the swarm is mediated by mechanical forcing rather than uh, direct communication. Even in the absence of any form of explicit communication through pheromones or acoustic signals, uh, the bees can coordinate this uh, shape change that we see in our experiments. And Orit suggested that a process like this could one day be applied to robot swarms. In the last couple of years, people have been giving a lot of attention to uh, swarm robotics and robotic materials. 
which uh, would potentially need to solve a similar problem to the problem that the bees need to solve, which is creating stable structures that respond to the environment and um, uh, maintain mechanical stability. I think this is still a bit futuristic for computer science and robotics, uh, but um, the first step is maybe to learn something from natural systems that had the privilege of evolution to perfect uh, those structures and maybe take those principles and project them to, to uh, robotic systems. That was Orit Peleg from the University of Colorado, Boulder. Before her, you heard from Jacob Peters and Maha Devon, who are both from Harvard University in the US. Read more on that story in Nature Physics, nature.com forward slash nphys. And if you have to see it to believe it, then check out our YouTube video on the study, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for that. Right, listeners, our last segment today is, of course, the news chat, and I'm joined here in the studio by Jane Lee, one of the news editors here at Nature. Hi, Jane. Hello. Good to be here. Well, we've got two stories from research conferences today, and, well, my goodness, they couldn't be more different. Uh, For the first one, let's head over to Barcelona, where the European Association of Archaeologists uh, recently had a meeting, part of which focused on a section of society that's been rather overlooked in the field of archaeology. Jane, I mean, what can you tell us about it? Right. So uh, researchers are starting to pay a lot more attention to what children uh, who were alive hundreds to to thousands of years ago were doing with their time. So what kind of work they were doing. Um, And they've been finding some really interesting details. I guess a lot of archaeology uh, has looked at sort of child burial or or diets, but this has been looking at sort of how they're spending their day-to-day sort of existence. Researchers knew that children were working. It's it's not like that's um, a complete surprise or anything like that. But what is interesting and what is uh, new is sort of the details of what these children were doing with their lives. So, um, you know, they uh, researchers are finding skeletal remains and even artifacts with, you know, little tiny fingerprints from kids as young as maybe six. Um, and, you know, kind of suggesting that, you know, kids were making clay pots and stuff like that. Yeah, and in the article on uh, nature.com slash news, I mean, it says that some of these findings go back to, well, thousands of years ago, right? Yeah, the Bronze Age. There's a um, a salt mine in Austria that researchers have been excavating for a while. And um, in the Bronze Age section of the mine, they found a child-sized leather cap um, and some tiny little tools like picks and things, um, suggesting that kids were working down there about two centuries earlier than researchers previously thought. Well, Jane, the conference session that these results have been shown at was called Children at Work. Do we know maybe why sort of children have been potentially overlooked a little bit in the field of archaeology? Well, I think they're one of several groups that have tended to be overlooked. Um, And it wasn't until maybe about the 90s when more and more archaeologists started paying attention to what women were doing in in the past. Uh, And, you know, some some other researchers were like, hang on, you know, (laughs) let's look at these other groups. And one of the other overlooked groups was was children. Um, I think part of it may be just there's not as much evidence of of kids um, and, and what they were doing is perhaps there is for the adults. Well, you say some evidence was found in a mine, and that seems like fairly back-breaking work. I mean, what, what other things have been found that suggest what, what children were doing in, in antiquity? Right. Um, and so there's a, a site in France, actually, where a researcher um, found three baby teeth with these um, cylindrical grooves in them. Um, and she says that that tends to form when uh, someone uses their teeth to, to really stretch and work animal tendon 
or, or plant material for things like sewing or, or making baskets. Um, and the teeth belong to uh, two children between the ages of one and eight. So those teeth are actually uh, dated to between 2100 and 3500 BC, uh, which makes them among the oldest evidence for children engaged in skilled labor. Well, I mean, I have to say, Jane, this is all kind of a little bit upsetting. And, you know, um, yeah. I mean, are there any other examples where things maybe weren't quite so terrible? Uh, yeah, you know, there's uh, um, some evidence in, in Canada, actually, uh, that a researcher's found. And uh, he's found evidence of, of children making these uh, clay vessels. And uh, he says that in a lot of modern day communities, you know, only pots of a certain quality make it to the kiln to be fired and uh, perhaps used. Um, but at his site, he finds that even the kind of wonky ones made by the little kids uh, made it to the kiln to be fired. Um, and, you know, he says that it shows that the the children in these societies had a certain level of social value because they they um, they were taking the time to to fire the pots that these children were making. Well, Jane, finally on this one, then. So, I mean, if this is kind of a a growing field, but maybe something that's been overlooked in the past, um, what what happens next? Where's it going? So, some of the researchers are actually going to go back and and take a fresh look at some of these sites that people have been excavating for a while. So the researchers looking at the salt mines in Austria um, to, to kind of confirm that that children may in fact have been working down in the Bronze Age section of the mine, they're actually going to look at the, um, there are human piles of excrement in these sections. <laughs> uh, and they're, and they're going to um, examine them for um, samples that, that actually lack uh, sex hormones, which uh, is indicative of, of younger children who just haven't uh, matured. So that's one of the things that they're looking at. And uh, one of the researchers, Maylie Leroy, says in the next years, we will find more and more evidence that children were participating early in their lives in economic society. All right. And Jane, well, for our second story, then let's, uh, let's change tack and head deep into the oceans. Okay, right. So we're going to dive down thousands of meters with researchers who showed some really cool videos of animals uh, at the Deep Sea Biology Symposium in Monterey, California. And that was early in September. Right. And so I imagine a lot of sort of submarines here and a lot of strange little jellyfish and what have you. Well, uh, so these researchers were using uh, remotely operated vehicles. And, um, you know, with these really cool advances in in cameras and low-light sensors, they're able to see behaviors and uh, light displays that just have eluded them for years. Oh, so we're we're sort of right down here where there's no sunlight. Yes, it's dark. And usually when researchers go down this deep, we're, you know, a thousand meters down, uh, they need to bring these really bright lights with them. Uh, It's a bit like driving a Mack truck down a really dark roadway. It's the animals that they encounter aren't always... At their best, shall we say. Some of them look a little stunned, kind of like, what's happening? Well, I'd like to say rabbit in the headlights, maybe. But in this case, it's maybe sort of a deep sea fish in the headlights. Yeah. And so researchers have been trying to to tweak the cameras and the sensors so that they can dim the lights and, you know, explore this realm in as natural a setting as they can. Well, don't keep us in suspense then, Jane. What sort of things have been found then? There is this this one animal called an arrow worm, and uh, it's it's fairly, you know, well-known. It's, it's not like it's a completely new... Uh, animal to science, but um, these researchers were able to catch it actually giving off these little donut rings of pale blue light. 
Um, and it's just sort of like this vortex, this trail behind it. Um, and that's something they hadn't ever seen before. Um, and they were able to capture it with these really advanced cameras. Oh, wow. So it's kind of seeing behaviors then that well, are new to science, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually with um, other advances in, in the resolution, uh, researchers are actually able to put 8K cameras on these underwater robots. And so 8K camera resolution actually nearly matches that of the human eye. And so researchers can take recordings of near-microscopic plankton uh, with such resolution that they can identify them to species. Well, people say we know more about the surface of the moon than we do kind of the bottom of the ocean and what's living there. Um, what are researchers saying about how this technology is going to help move things forward? Well, you know, it's, it's bringing up more questions than answers, which in some ways is a good thing. And, um, you know, one of the researchers was saying, you know, it's taking them past kind of the gee whiz phase, you know, that's it's all really, really cool. But, you know, what do these behaviors mean? Um, how do they help the animal function in their habitat? Things like that. Well, Jane, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, what I'll say is there's some animated GIFs of some of these animals and you can see kind of the pulses of light coming from them. And you'll find those over at nature.com slash news. Uh, That's also where you'll find all the latest news from the world of science. Well, that is it for this week's show. And that's it from me. Yep, certainly the end of an era. And listeners, I'm sure you'll join me in thanking Adam for his amazing work on the podcast. And I'm sure you'll miss him just as much as we will. But Adam, where can listeners find out what you'll be up to next? Well, if you type in Climate Adam, that's all one word, into Twitter, YouTube or Facebook, you'll track me down. It will surprise none of you, I'm sure, to know that I plan to continue to witter on about climate change and other science for quite some time. Nice one, Adam. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I've been Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>